0: Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, P.J. O'Rourke discusses the libertarian hard sell. Author Robert Guest extols the importance of free movement. In addition, this month we take you to highlights from the Cato Institute's November conference Ending the Global War on Drugs, featuring the comments of former Brazilian President Fernando Enrique Cardoso, Former Mexican Foreign Affairs Minister Jorge Castaneda, Salon.com columnist Glenn Greenwald, and Drug Policy Alliance head Ethan Nadelin. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As of this recording, the main focus of the GOP race for the nomination has been Mitt Romney's tax returns, various people's opinions on abortion, but not so much on entitlements. And I think uh, most most people agree that that's the issue that uh, needs a great deal of focus right now. So I'm talking with uh, Jagadish Gokhale, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a member of the Social Security Advisory Board and author of Social Security, A Fresh Look at Policy Alternatives. I'm also speaking with Mike Tanner, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, author of the new policy analysis, Social Security, Ponzi Schemes, and the Need for Reform, and is currently working on another one, I guess tentatively titled, Still a Better Deal, which works through the comparison between private investment and the returns, the pitiful returns that Social Security has delivered over the years. Gentlemen, welcome.
1: Glad to be with you.
0: Pleasure as always. So just to get started here, Jagadish, when we think about Social Security, fundamentally- As big as the the problem is in terms of unfunded liabilities, as big as the the on-the-books debts that we are accruing and are on track to accrue with entitlement spending and other spending, still there's a fundamental miscalculation that people make, even experts make, when calculating what we owe to these workers as they head into retirement. Can you get into sort of the nature of that problem? Because I I think it, it informs the debate very well.
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. So the fundamental issue is simply that people tend to look at how much is in the trust fund, the fund into which people pay in payroll taxes that go to the treasury, and then the treasury transfers the money to the trust fund. After the trust fund pays benefits from the incoming payroll taxes, whatever surplus remains is deposited into the trust fund. But Unfortunately, the trust fund only invests in government treasury securities, which means the money then goes back to the government effectively, and the government spends it. And this has been happening over the years. So all the surpluses that went into the Social Security Trust Fund are spent. They're not saved for preparing for paying future benefits to retirees and the baby boomers who are 76 million strong, and they'll be retiring are retiring as we speak, and will be making demands on the system for benefits that are owed to them under current laws.
0: So for the last several decades, just to clarify, for the last several decades, whatever surpluses we've had have been smaller or non-existent, and our deficits have been bigger in reality. That is
1: one element of the problem. The other element of the problem is that in past decades, retirees were paid much more in terms of benefits than they paid in payroll taxes when they were working. So the generosity of the benefits paid to them have to be made up somehow. Who's gonna make them up? It's gonna be future generations of taxpayers. So if we compare how much money we need to defray the liability or to fund the liability for people alive today, older than age 20, let's say, or 22, which is when you start entering the system and begin paying payroll taxes. That liability is of the order of magnitude of $20 trillion. On the other hand, the trust fund contains a paltry $2.5 trillion. So by focusing on the trust fund, the $2.5 trillion in the trust fund, there is a sense created that there's so much money in the trust fund, Social Security has no problem, no funding problem. In reality, the funding problem is huge of the order of magnitude of $20 trillion, and even that $2.5 trillion is not real money. It's just paper IOUs, which represents what the government owes the trust fund because it's taken the money and spent it. So overall, the, problem, the size of the problem is $20 trillion in today's values, meaning we need to have an additional $20 trillion on hand earning interest to be able to continue with policies on the books on Social Security as they are without changing them. But now that we don't have that money... We've got to come up with that money either through more revenues into the system, which is not a desirable direction to go in, or rationalize the system, make the obligations of the government to pay Social Security benefits small enough that we can live within our means.
0: Michael Tanner, those are two options that are politically not very popular.
2: Well, certainly not. The fact is that you would have to raise taxes by a substantial amount. If you wanted to put Social Security uh, on a purely sustainable basis by tax increases alone, you'd have to raise the payroll tax from its current 12.4% to somewhere in the neighborhood of around 18%, or you'd have to cut benefits by about a quarter or thereabouts. Both of those are going to be quite painful. Certainly, I think uh, bringing the benefits down slowly in time over the future is probably a preferable way. There are many ways to do it, some better than others. You can always raise the retirement age. You can means test. Both of those, I think, have definite problems with them. I prefer uh, changing the way the benefit formula is calculated, something technical called the wage price benefit uh, formula, which you can make some changes in. But there's many ways you can do that. And then if you're going to make future generations, today's young people essentially uh, pay a price in lower benefits, then I think we ought to offer them some reward in exchange for that by allowing them to privately invest a portion of their payroll taxes in real return rate earning private investments uh, through personal accounts.
1: One issue regarding calculating exactly what reforms are beneficial and what reforms would be fair for Social Security, not just for us, but also for future generations. So we're gonna have to bear the majority of the burden that we are creating by getting more generous benefits than what we've paid into the system. The Social Security Administration puts out reams and reams of data and analyses and information about exactly how that trade-off might work. My book is about investigating whether they do a good job of putting out that information. And I find my calculations based on modeling in a very detailed manner, the demographic and economic behaviors and choices of the American people that we've observed in the past, I find projecting those behaviors and those interactions into the future, Social Security's underfunding is actually much worse, to the tune of 50% worse than what the actuaries project.
0: Now, I want you to go into detail on that. But first, tell me, how does Social Security Administration and other groups that put those calculations out, how do they project these demographic trends to uh, work out over time?
1: Well, they look at historical data as well, but their method is a very coarse method. They do not take into account the detailed interactions between people of different genders, different levels of education, their future earning capacity in as detailed a manner, and do not allow the underlying interactions between all of those forces to play out fully. So their crude method gives them some rough idea, but if you model these features of the U.S. economy in more detail, you get different results.
0: And different, uh, different in, in what the, direction? In, in Different, what direction? different
1: in, the, in the worst direction, meaning Social Security's impending imbalance into the future is much larger to the tune of one and a half times as large as what they actually say.
0: Now, Mike Tanner, you mentioned that the payroll tax rates would have to rise to 18%. Is that including the productivity choices, the different choices that people would make being faced with a payroll tax like that?
2: No, that's just a very static analysis. It's looking at the level of benefits you're paying and the amount of payroll tax you'd have to be bringing in or the equivalent in other kinds of taxes. Ironically, of course, what we have just done is actually cut the payroll tax in the last two years and we are politically locking ourselves in a position where we're going to have a permanently lower payroll tax going forward, which is going to make all of Jagadish's calculations much worse. The deficits are going to grow much bigger. At the same time, politically, what we're finding is a complete lack of will in either party to really address the problem. We know that President Obama has ruled out any sort of personal investment. He's also ruled out uh, raising the retirement age, reducing benefits, uh, means testing. He seems to have pretty well ruled out uh, anything on the uh, on the benefit side. The Republicans, uh, Mitt Romney has been willing to touch benefits, but he is opposed to personal accounts. And Newt Gingrich, while he has developed a personal account plan, it is the sort of free lunch plan that is much better politically than it is economically. It's not really very serious. Free lunch plan?
1: Well, before we go into talking about free lunch plan, I'd like to point out something really important, what this political deadlock means. It's a double-edged sword, according to me. On the one hand, it suggests that the Republicans are holding fast on avoiding economically destructive tax increases. On the other hand, as long as the deadlock continues, we risk a different form of privatization, which is an undesirable form. And we're witnessing what's going on in Greece and Spain and Italy and so on. So those governments are backed up to the wall. They are short of funds. Creditors don't have confidence in their ability to repay their debts. And as a result, they're having to cut benefits for their Populations, social insurance benefits—that's another form of privatization. I mean, it's a backdoor f- way of privatization. We should engage in privatizing these social insurance programs proactively, so that, that we better control what happens and who bears the costs.
2: And when you look at uh, the U.S. situation compared to the European situations, I mean, we are being basically kept afloat by the fact that, as the world's preferential currency, people are willing to lend us money cheap for the time being but our actual numerical situation is in many ways worse. Uh, our deficit is about as large as Greece's as a percentage of GDP. And if you look at the unfunded liabilities going forward, what Jagadish is talking about in Social Security, but also Medicare, we are actually in worse shape than Greece, uh, purely if you measure the numbers.
0: All right. You mentioned uh, Newt Gingrich has a plan that sounds uh, is more of a free lunch plan. You said uh, Mitt Romney is opposed to personal accounts. Where is... Uh, Congressman Ron Paul in all of this. It's widely expected that he will continue his campaign, even though it's becoming less likely that he will win the Republican nomination. But to the extent that he has young people, as was described on CNN, an army of young voters... These are people who could be setting the tone within the Republican Party in a few years, potentially. That is, if the GOP decides they want those voters long term.
2: Well, Ron Paul has generally opposed plans in the past to create personal accounts within Social Security because he believes that Social Security is unconstitutional and should simply be phased out. In the long run, in the short term, he has called for taking savings from bringing troops back overseas ending the Afghan war and so on, and transferring those monies to sort of shore up Social Security and Medicare in the short term, and then in the long term, simply phasing the programs out.
0: Jagadish, you and I have talked about this a couple of times, and that's the idea that you know when you have a huge social insurance program that people are may make different choices with their earning capacity with their earnings with some argue with how many children to have when it comes to, you know, how they structure their lives if they have, have this expectation decades from now to be taken care of. How does that play out in terms of trying to get us out of having the government in the retirement business?
1: You know, the idea that providing benefits for retirees and to take care of all contingencies that life throws at us, that is basically protect us from all the vicissitudes that we face economically, physically, during the course of our life. If the government stands ready to take care of us in that fashion, then we will become lazy, we will not work. Think about the following situation, if the government credibly promises to pay every last penny of my expenditure after I turn 65, it would be rational for me to arrive at that age with no savings. And it would be rational for me to stop working at that age. So these are incentive-destroying programs. They destroy the incentive to work. They destroy incentives to save. And to the extent that people have children, at least traditionally, we think that one reason to have children is to have some mechanism of someone who would take care of you during old age If the government's going to take care of you during your old age, then the motivation or the incentive to have children is less. And even if you have children, the incentive to educate them, bring them up so that they have earning capacity and are able to make their way through life prosperously is diluted. And so any time the government steps in to protect you, it's creating a situation where your incentive to be economically successful, is diluted.
2: What's worse is that the government actually lies about it. They create the incentive and then don't follow through. For example, they promise that they are, in effect, saving for your retirement. The the implication behind Social Security is that somehow the government is putting money away in savings that's going to take care of you in your retirement. So you naturally, as Jagadji says, you save less yourself. Well, if the government actually was saving, that would all sort of work out as a wash. But the problem is the government doesn't actually save that money. As you heard earlier, they spend it. So what you've got is you're not saving because you think the government is, and the government's not saving either. The result is that when you reach retirement, there's no money there.
1: And then you end up in a Greek-style privatization.
2: (laughs) A Greek-style
0: privatization. That does not sound good. (laughs) When people talk about Social Security on the airwaves or on TV news channels, typically they throw out sometimes if they're not particularly concerned about Social Security's future, they say it's fine. They say, well, we can just engage in a couple of very simple reforms. We can raise the retirement age. We can uh, use a different method of uh, indexing benefit growth over time. And you know what? Once you've done that, these problems that you're talking about, they just go away. And I still hear that today.
2: Well, and and there's truth to that. You can raise taxes enough or you can cut benefits enough to restore the system to balance. But there's a certain price to be paid for doing any of those things. If you raise taxes sufficiently to keep the system in balance, you're depriving people of a chance to save that money or spend it. You're taking it out of the economy in many ways. And if you cut benefits enough to bring the system into balance, those people who are dependent on Social Security and lower income people get much of their retirement benefits from Social Security, they're going to do with a lot less.
1: The other issue is connecting this back to my initial complaint about the trustees' calculations of exactly how big the financial hole in Social Security is and what methods and metrics we use to judge or compare different reform alternatives If you don't have the right basis for making these comparisons, we may find, like Japan did, that we have to undergo several phases of reforms, each time discovering, oh, the reforms we did weren't sufficient. We are still in a fiscal hole and we've got to do more. So it really means you're not being honest with the citizens about exactly what the trade-offs are.
0: Just one last thing before we wrap up here. These people who make these types of claims about the simple changes that need to – these are technically simple changes to engage in. That is if you have a dictator operating your social security system, that these changes are easy to make. But we live in a world where politicians are elected and they then appoint people who are placed in charge of these systems. They vote on legislation. It's as if the political will to get all the, these kinds of reforms – There's some faraway place or maybe near-term place, but certainly not now where the political will is just simply there.
2: Well, if you've been watching TV recently, you've seen the ads from AARP, which is a lobby that exists primarily to take money from young people and give it to old people and earn hotel discounts along the way. They have been running ads saying, don't you dare touch my social security benefits. Uh, We're 50 million strong and we vote. And that is a problem the likelihood of your voting is roughly the equivalent of your age. Older people vote, younger people don't, and as long as that's the case, politicians will give benefits to older people and the bill to younger people.
1: And that situation is getting worse. As the baby boomers come upon retirement, the lobby of the elderly to protect their benefits and Social Security and Medicare is going to get stronger. And therefore, the incentives for the political parties to come together, jump off the cliff holding their hands together, so to say, to make these reforms, Seems uh, less and less likely.
0: All right. We're going to leave it on that down note here. Jagadish Gokhale is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a member of the Social Security Advisory Board. He is author of the recent book, Social Security, A Fresh Look at Policy Alternatives. And Michael Tanner, also a senior fellow at Cato, author of the recent policy analysis, Social Security, Ponzi Schemes and the Need for Reform. Also working on another one. So look for that in the future. The Cato Institute has been working for a very long time on privatizing Social Security, getting the government out of the retirement business. You can find all of that information that has been compiled over many years at our website, cato.org. There may be no easy answers in the world, but there are some obvious ones. That not-so-bold claim, according to P.J. O'Rourke, makes libertarianism a bit of a hard sell. He made his humorous case at a Cato Institute city seminar in November.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, speaking to a gathering of libertarians is always a somewhat sad occasion for me. Not that I'm not glad to be here, not that you're not wonderful folks, and not that we aren't having a great time. It's just this feeling that I have. That within a radius of a hundred miles containing population of millions, I am speaking to the only people in their right minds. Can be a little, cause a little discour- is discouragement being a libertarian. Uh, not that we are discouraged, because brave people don't get discouraged. And it takes a lot of bravery to be a libertarian. Bravery to be rational in the face of irrationality, logical in the face of the absurd, informed in the face of the ignorant, right in the face of wrong. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers and sisters, Gentlemen in Chicago, now at Romney fundraisers, shall think themselves accursed they were not here today. Mm-hmm. We, as libertarians, have always had to accept the fact that politically our philosophy is a hard sell. People want easy political answers to the problems of life, and we know there are intelligent answers. We know there are correct answers. We know that there are even obvious answers, but there are no easy answers, and we know that. Libertarianism is a kind of Mensa club. Not everybody's going to get in. No. To be libertarian, it's as bad as being a politician who tells the truth. Now imagine what would happen to a politician who told the truth, even a little itty-bitty-bitty bit of truth. Imagine the politician who got up on the campaign stump and said, no, I can't fix public education. The problem isn't underfunding or teachers unions or lack of school vouchers or a shortage of computer equipment in the classroom. The problem is your damn kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Libertarianism is a, it's a hard sell because we tell voters, elect Elect people of libertarian belief, and they'll do less for you, you know? Because we tell voters, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like what happens when the invisible hand of the market is crushed by the strong arm of the government. Because we tell everybody the fundamental principle of America, you have one right to do what you want and one duty to take the consequences. And because libertarianism is politically such a hard sell, there is an abiding temptation among libertarians to retreat into the apolitical. Now, given what American politics is like at the moment, apolitical has a nice ring to it. It really does. It would be great to say, like Michael Vick does, I don't have a dog in that fight. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But in fact, in fact, there is no such thing as apolitical. Politics like gravity. There's no getting away from it on this planet. Now, it's fine to have no opinion about gravity or to love it when it keeps the baby in the crib or hate it when you step on the bathroom scale, but you can't ignore it. Now, maybe you are a what we call a left libertarian, a, 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 a Democrat, and you need gravity to keep your head full of spacey ideas from floating away. you know. Or maybe you're a, a conservative libertarian, a Republican, and you need gravity so you can shove other people to the ground. But you can't pretend gravity doesn't exist. And you can't pretend that politics don't exist either. That is the same as stepping out a ten story window into thin air. You're gonna land like an Italian bond price, you know? I mean, act like that you could wind up with some half baked Harvard Law School community organizer Chicago hack in the White House, you know? You know? Now, you especially can't pretend politics doesn't exist during a presidential election season, a season of hot air that pretty much proves the existence of global warming since it's lasting forever. During presidential election season, everything is a political issue, but especially economic things. And voters are uncomfortable about the economy right now. Because it sucks. We got these fiduciary El Ninos bringing sovereign debt floods to one place and unemployment droughts to someplace else. We got subprime mortgage tornadoes that lifted real estate prices into the sky and sent them crashing who knows where. We got bear market lightning strikes, jolting stock exchanges, currency devaluation mudslides. We got bailout and stimulus hurricanes. We have got some bad economic weather and voters want government to do something about it. And politicians, Democrats and Republicans alike, they're glad to agree with the voters. Politicians say government will bring you balmy sunshine every day of the year. Yet what can government really do about the economy? Well, what government really does is Solyndra, the company that made solar panels in the dark. And Obamacare. People are now going to be able to get sick for free. Never mind that getting sick was always free. It's getting well. It costs a lot of money. I'm not pleased with the political atmosphere in America right now. I'm not happy with President Obama. He wants to raise taxes. I don't like that. Of course, he wants to raise taxes on just the rich. I do like that. Then I read the fine print. I'm rich. <laughs> I could have sworn I was broke. I've got to... I got three kids. I'm putting through school. I got a mortgaged house that's currently worth less than a double wide on a Mississippi floodplain. Um, but you know, it's not just that I personally don't want to pay more taxes. It, it, it's the big picture. It's the big picture that gets me. America's gross domestic product's about 14 trillion dollars a year. America's combined federal, state, and local government spending is 5.8 trillion a year, 40 percent of GDP. Oughta be enough you're giving your college kid 40 percent of your income for an allowance should hold him till the end of the semester right government spending 40 percent of our money is government doing 40 percent of our job is government doing 40 percent of our laundry i mean when we go to hooters is government tending bar making sure that four out of ten margaritas are on the house you know when our spouse is feeling romantic and we're tired Does government come over to our house and take care of foreplay? Actually, back during the Clinton administration, could have happened. Then there is President Obama's fiscal policy. The American Jobs Act, for example. The president thinks we can spend our way out of the recession. My wife and two daughters have been trying this at the mall, not working. $447 $447 billion Jobs Act plus the $700 billion TARP program plus the $787 billion stimulus package plus the $3.7 trillion 2012 federal budget. You add that up and it equals more money than there is. There ain't that much money. Government is spending money that doesn't exist. Where will they get it? I don't know. I don't know. But right now, Treasury Secretary... Timothy Geithner. He is uh, in the visitor's room at a federal prison trying to pry the secret out of Bernie
0: Madoff. The United States could well be the world's most powerful nation for a long time to come. That's the argument of Robert Guest of The Economist magazine in his new book, Borderless Economics. In it, he argues that vast cross-border networks create wealth, spread ideas, and foster innovation And the United States need only keep its borders open to reap many of those incredible benefits.
4: Guests spoke at the Cato Institute in November. Freedom of movement, why does it matter? When people move, they bring ideas with them and they bring connections with them. There has been a fundamental and profound change in the nature of global migration. Now, it's partly that the numbers are bigger. You know, people are more mobile than they've ever been. So there are 215 million first generation migrants in the world. That's about 3% of the world's population. And it's a very dynamic 3%. If it were a country, first generation migrants would be the fifth largest country in the world, and probably the most innovative. And you can sort of divide that out into various diasporas. You know, you have the Chinese and the Indians are the, are the big ones. I mean, people, when they think of the world, they think of, you know, lines on a map. And you think of China as being, you know, a big nation in East Asia, and the president is Hu Jintao, and they have a particular system of government. And then where you've got the borders, that's, that's where it ends. But if you think of the Chinese people instead, it's a completely different picture. Because suddenly, this is something global. There are, you know, 70 million Chinese people living outside mainland China that's more than there are French people living in France they're in every country and they you know they're spread out around the world and this is the other big change okay it used to be that when migrants left the place that they came from they would they would get on a, a boat and they would sail and they would arrive in their destination country and then they pretty much lose contact with the places they came from because you know back at the beginning of the century a transatlantic telephone call would cost you more than your life savings and you know cheap air flight hadn't been invented so people just lose touch and that's just so not true anymore you have People, as soon as the, uh, the plane touches the tarmac, they're texting their mothers back home and you can talk on Skype for free and you can do social networking. You can follow the news from your hometown on your laptop. You can watch soap operas from the place you came from on your laptop. You can sign online petitions about, you know, the building works outside your mother's house back in Karachi. You can do all kinds of things. You can send money. You can start businesses. So migrants these days tend to stay intimately and constantly in touch with the places that they came from. Now, some people believe, I know uh, Mark Krikorian, for example, who wrote quite an articulate book against immigration to America, who argued that because people are staying in touch with the places they came from, that means they're never going to assimilate, they're never going to become American. Well, that's a cogent argument, and I completely disagree with it. I think that this opens the contact That immigrants have with the places that they came from opens up a whole range of new possibilities because they can stay in touch with where they came from they create networks and those networks have tremendous consequences for business for technology and innovation and for politics i've been told to end here before i get on to but i'll just end with a thought about demography okay you look at what's going on in europe at the moment There's a debt crisis there because Europeans basically stopped having babies. You know, the underlying reason, they've stopped having babies so there aren't enough young working people to pay for the pensions for everybody else. And you could solve this problem up to a degree by having more immigration. But in Europe, you know, the welfare state, you pay immigrants not to work. And you take away their benefits when they start working. So you don't really get the best out of the uh, youth and dynamism of the immigrant population. America completely different, you know. if You come here as an immigrant, you have to work because, you know, you can't really subsist as an able-bodied young male here uh, on what, what people will pay you not to work. And that means that immigrants have to get on with other people here because in the workplace, you have to get on with people. You're, you're working towards a common purpose. And that's why the American model will continue to work and why the American population will continue to rise, and as the global population stabilizes, which it will very soon, you'll find that more and more the population, and therefore the economic strength of countries, will be determined more and more by where people want to live, rather than how many people are born there. And I think a lot of people will choose to live here, if you let them.
0: What goes into the most productive professors in higher ed? Well, it may be a mystery to most of us, but it shouldn't be a mystery to university leaders and heads of departments. Stephen Joel Trachtenberg is former president of George Washington University. He spoke at the Cato Institute's November conference, squeezing the tower. Are we getting all we can from higher education?
5: My wife, Francine, is uh, an extraordinary chef. Some years ago, in celebration of my birthday, Francine uh, set a table of international uh, cuisine. When I turned 50, she prepared a Chinese banquet, a meal that included several hours of dining with Francine stir-frying each course between servings. And she made dumplings and spring rolls and Peking duck and hot and sour soup and lemon chicken with cashews and pungent shrimp with scallions and glazed spare ribs and spicy beef and peppers and braised lamb with turnips and lots of fried rice, and ended up with a uh, pineapple panna cotta. And when it was over, she basked in a glory of applause, earning five stars and multiple knives and forks from the 16 guests sitting around the table. And after everybody had left, I said, well, that was some success. The crowd loved it. What a night. And she said, what a night? She said, you think this meal was produced in a night? She had weeks, weeks of designing the menu, carefully balancing the tastes, the textures, the spices, starting with sweet and moving to savory, hitting a crescendo with the spiciest and coming down to mellow in preparation for the dessert. Three hours of eating was produced by three weeks of preparation and will be followed by three days of putting all the dishes, silverware, and glasses back in their proper place. Cuisine, she said, is a behind-the-scenes operation. So, When I was president of GW, I heard the same refrain from senior faculty. What do you mean I only teach six hours a week? Do you know what goes into preparing a three credit course? Weeks of syllabus preparation preceding by writing lectures, conducting research, grading papers, and holding office hours. And what about the seven years it took to get my doctorate? Professoring, they said, is a behind the scenes operation. I said bullshit, but quietly. I have now been restored to my First Amendment rights, and I'm uh, making the most of it. On average, faculty and staff salaries are roughly 70% of college and university budgets. Universities are, in fact, labor-intensive places. You cannot have financial reform of colleges and universities without addressing the staff and the faculty's position at the institution. While this is certainly not the only item that has to be scrutinized, To ignore the staff and the faculty is to behave like Congress trying to address the deficit. You can cut the president's salary all you want. You can cut the Congress' compensation by 50%. That's not trying. The 1,500-pound elephant cannot be ignored. In the spirit of the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, I am here today to offer a few modest proposals for beginning the reform of higher education. First, a quick anecdote. In a Connecticut newspaper about a dozen years ago, I saw an article that reported that a faculty member arrived at her office and saw a copy of the student newspaper announcing that the college was scheduled to close at the end of the semester. A faculty member uh, rushed to the dean's office and said, what the hell happened? Too many bills, not enough cash, replied the dean. Shaking her head with concern, the faculty member added, you know, I saw that my classes were getting smaller each semester, but I thought that was a good thing. I was teaching a seminar instead of a large lecture class. Turns out, it wasn't positive, it was negative. The handwriting was on the blackboard, to paraphrase an old quote, but she didn't notice. Let's begin with basics and review the goals of higher education. Simply put, I've got it down to three things. Transmit knowledge from generation to generation, opening young minds to wonderful new areas of learning and broad uh, concepts in great depth. Two, create bodies of scholarship, new, old, writing, and art, and analyze a refreshing manner There is existing repository. Find new ways to uh, explain an old puzzlement. Three, assist a group of young people, the students, transition to fully independent young adults who will enter the world of work and become responsible civic participants. College is the halfway house, the gateway between teenage years and adulthood. And if at all possible, this must be accomplished in an economically sound fashion, effectively, efficiently, without diminishing the quality of erudition or open access of enrollment or reduction in scholarly output. So it's important to remember that universities are one of the last major endeavors to remain in the handcrafted world of production. The conversation between professors and students comes very close to one-on-one dialogues. Indeed, as a former president of the University of Hartford as well as GW, where I had a conservancy of music, I can assure you that their relationship to faculty and students is indeed one-to-one. You don't teach violin as a lecture course. The individuality of both the tutor and the tutee are respected. The academy is a world of artisans, and as such, it is not always possible to apply the laws of the assembly line to its operation. One must also keep in mind that scholars are frequently idiosyncratic. Each is the master of a minute part of the universe. On every campus, there was someone who had more to say about Shakespeare than Shakespeare himself had to say about his own plays and sonnets. It took Ken Burns, for example, three years longer to make the public television series The Civil War than it took the North and the South to fight the damn war. <laughs> Education, it turns out, is a time-consuming enterprise. Now, I'm going to make a gross generalization, and one of the great funs of being president emeritus rather than a sitting president is that I get to do that. The character flaw of most faculty members is that they prefer to be left alone, rather than to be social animals interacting with their colleagues. They have chosen their profession in part because they are basically accountable only to themselves. This is a good gig. Somebody said that earlier today when I was listening to the lectures. Absolutely a wonderful thing. They are not great fans of department chairs, deans, provosts, or academic vice presidents and certainly not of university presidents. I hear that there are some faculty who don't even like students. Scholarship is a lonely art. Universities are now managed by a system including shared governance that gives faculty members a say in how things are designed and run. But of the many things that we don't teach faculty on their way to their PhDs, on their way to tenure, does the institution provide them with a background or training necessary to understand how the organization actually runs. Most faculty have very little knowledge of either economics, the management of universities, or anything at all about the history of higher education. Few faculty members can look at a university's balance sheet or an annual budget and comprehend the nuances of fund accounting. This is not what they're trained to do. I want you to think about scale. Major university today, one that has, let's say, 15,000 students, will have an operating budget approaching a billion dollars. Resource allocation, therefore, is not simple.
0: The global war on drugs has largely been led by the United States. It has compromised U.S. relations with other countries and has indirectly caused thousands of deaths along our border with Mexico. At Cato's November conference ending the global war on drugs, scholars gathered to discuss what might be next in a costly, ill-conceived struggle. We bring you four of that conference's speakers. First, Drug Policy Alliance head
6: Ethan Nadelman. What's going on today? Well, first, Obama. Obama. You know, he wasn't so bad from a drug policy perspective in his first year. When he was running for office, he made three campaign commitments. He said he was going to get rid of those crack powder, mandatory minimum drug laws, which are so racially disproportionate and unjust. He said he was going to allow federal funding for needle exchange programs, I mean, only being 25 years after almost every other civilized society had done it. And he said he was going to get the federal government not interfering in medical marijuana in the states that had made it legal. And within the first 12 months, somewhat to my surprise, Basically, he didn't lead on the needle exchange thing, but he let the Democrats in the House do it, and it happened. And then on the rolling, getting rid of the crack powder ones, they allied with us reformers, and they pushed for major reform in that area, and they did it in good faith, and they got a significant victory in terms of reducing, and not for this hundred to one disparity to one to one, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, but something that was more equitable, more just, more based on science. And then thirdly, a medical marijuana, his Justice Department put out a statement in mid-2009 basically saying that it should not be a priority of federal law enforcement to go after medical marijuana in the states that had made it legal if state authorities were okay with it. I was surprised. Relatively good on all three commitments, not bad at all. That last step, by the way, opened up huge running rooms. State legislatures say oh, the feds are sending us a signal now. We can begin to legalize medical marijuana and responsibly regulate this stuff. You know, dispensaries started sprouting in Colorado and in and, and Montana. States begin, who had already legalized medical marijuana begin to issue responsible regulatory legislation. That happened in, for example, Colorado, which has one of the significant for-profit models of medical marijuana. So there was a real sense of forward movement. But I have to tell you, for the last two years... He has not delivered. He is not delivered, and increasingly it is impossible to tell his drug policies apart from those of his predecessors under the Bush and the Clinton administrations. On medical marijuana, which I'll get into in a minute, they rolled back, and now you see federal prosecutors running rampant around on, on this medical marijuana thing. You have the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms basically saying that anybody with a medical marijuana you know, ID card, a recommendation from a doctor, of which there are now between three quarters of a million and a million legal patients around the United States, that they are not allowed to own a gun and a licensed gun owner cannot sell to them and most of the states which have legalized medical marijuana are gun-friendly states I mean Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Vermont crazy on what, as if there's any evidence that smoking marijuana for medical purposes is associated with reckless gun behavior? I mean, there's no policy thinking behind it either, and it's politically foolish. He has the IRS telling legal medical marijuana dispensaries playing by all the rules that they cannot deduct the same business expenses as others. He has federal prosecutors that are basically sending forfeiture orders to property owners who rent to medical marijuana dispensaries, you know, saying, you better stop or we're going to arrest you and take away your property. He has other federal prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, sending letters to governors and state officials saying, you better not pass that regulatory legislation because it's all illegal under federal law. He's got the U.S. attorney in San Diego saying, I want to test the First Amendment. I want to go after those newspapers that are running ads for medical marijuana. Basically, what's happening is that federal prosecutors and federal law enforcement are running out of control in this country today. The arrogance of prosecutors in America, the federal and the state and local level is one of the fundamental things driving the war on drugs and the problems of overcriminalization and over-incarceration in America. There's an arrogance to that power and there is no check on them. Combine that, combine that with a drug war bureaucracy that goes back 40 years, that has become very accustomed to never being challenged or questioned, and what you have is a system that absent strong leadership is not going to change. Now, having blasted Obama, you know who's even worse? It's the Republicans the Republicans, and quite frankly, most of the conservatives. I mean, I loved it when Milton Friedman and William Buckley were right up there. You know, I love George Schultz; He's fantastic, you know. And i got to say, there are people like Grover Norquist and David Keene, and of course, Gary Johnson, the former governor of New Mexico, and a few other brave souls around the country who are standing up. But you now have the House Judiciary Committee being run by Congressman Lamar Smith from Texas. I mean, it's like the throwback to the drug war hysteria of the late 80s and early 90s. He introduced a bill that would have resulted in two people sitting over lunch today saying, hey, we're going to Amsterdam next week, let's meet at a coffee shop and smoke a joint, being subject to violating a federal conspiracy law. You know, there's a new synthetic marijuana, there's a process for dealing with this stuff. They hold a hearing, let's criminalize it, no regardless of the consequences. The same idiocy we saw with the criminalization of the crack penalties and cocaine pills in the 80s, the things that filled our prisons to unprecedented proportions with no consideration of public safety, health, or fiscal responsibility. There does need to be movement among conservatives, and God knows we need people stepping out. You know, to the extent that Cato, I have to say, it's what I love about Cato. Because the way Cato, you know, in Washington, D.C., where it's so notorious here for you guys put on intellectual blinders and you don't even know it being in the beltway. Right, But to have an organization that's putting the radical arguments there for legalization and putting in the face of people in Washington, D.C., and generating those sorts of important conflicts over policy and principle among conservatives is an incredibly valuable role. I, who have links across the board but are stronger on the left and the Democratic side, am doing everything I can. But we need the help on the side of conservatives and Republicans as well. More new leadership. Schultz is fantastic. He's wonderful. He's a hero of mine, but he's 90. Right, Paul Volcker, fantastic, a leader, but he's 83 or 4 or something, and they got a lot of energy and let him live to be 120, but still, we need new people stepping out.
0: Next, speaking at the Cato Institute's November conference ending the global war on drugs, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the former president of Brazil.
7: Well, in any case, what I would say is that our day was a long day, but the debate was really a debate. This was important, and I think it was very successful. So I have to, to say to this organization, Cato Institute, that for me it was really very positive to come here and to see the level of debate, the openness of the discussion, and the fact that it's really a debate. Everyone is asking because we don't know exactly what can be done. But because of of that experience, we decided to launch a new initiative and we did, which is the Global Commission on Drug Policy. In the second day of June, we launched in New York a report calling for a drastic paradigm shift in drug policy, what I referred to before. First and foremost, we must stop pretending that repression alone can protect people. This is the result of our report. We need a more flexible and comprehensive approach based on the principles of public health, human security, and common sense. We propose two strategic measures to move forward. The first, end the criminalization of people who use drugs but do not harm to others. People with drug problems should be treated as patients, not criminals. The obvious first step already in place is a number of countries in Europe and America is a precondition for treatment, harm reduction, and prevention. This has been very well explained in the case of Portugal and also by Nadalman. If the users look at the state as an enemy, if they are feeling the state, it's even difficult for them to accept that the state can help them. It's simple and difficult how to change people's mind vis-a-vis what is the role of the state. Is the state there just to repress or the state is there also to help? And it's not just the state. It's much more than the state. Only the state is society, people. So that's why it's so important also to debate and to inform the population and to open the discussion because the political leaders, as I said before, they are much more resistant to accept change and it is necessary to have a massive debate around this kind of question. Well, anyhow, we believe that the first measure is to decriminalize the use of that. Second, explore models of legal and social regulation of drugs such as marijuana that are less harmful than tobacco and alcohol. Again, I don't need to say any word about that because it has been so clearly presented this afternoon here, so clearly. What, why marijuana? Because it's less harmful. And also because it's maybe used by a majority of people. So that's why it's, it's, we have to start with you know, exploring models of legal and social regulation. Well, in this bold and pragmatic measure, is a precondition to reduce the power of organized crime and safeguard people's health and people's security. Well, this report received a huge media coverage and was endorsed by 700,000 signatures in a petition distributed or stimulated by the Avaha's site in in the, the social media and we presented the document with these 700,000 signatures to the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and to the ambassadors of key countries accredited at the United Nations. This was in last June. And now we believe that uh, we have to continue. I must say that uh, not just me, also said the same, I'm a a little bit disappointed with the lack of reaction by political leaders. people react more positively, the media, accept more openly the debate. And the political leaders are a little bit afraid. The same is occurring across the region, the, in the southern region, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Chile, in Mexico, in Colombia, everywhere, the uh, public something has to be done. But the political leaders are much more cautious in, in that. Now maybe because of the crisis, because of budgetary constraints, because of necessity to take maybe different solutions for the same problems, that we have a window of possibilities in America and in other parts of the world.
0: Now, from the Cato Institute's November Conference Ending the Global War on Drugs, former Foreign Affairs Minister for Mexico, Jorge Castaneda.
8: I want to spend a few minutes on the beginnings because I think if we don't go back to why we got into this mess, it's very difficult to understand how to get out of it. I know a lot of my colleagues in Mexico and in the United States say, well, okay, whatever reasons President Calderón had for getting into this uh, war, the fact is now we're in it and we have to do something about it. Yes, but it's not idle, it's not useless to go back and see to what extent this war was declared almost exactly five years ago, as we speak, on false premises. First false premise. Violence in Mexico had been increasing. Something had to be done about it. Absolutely false. Violence in Mexico had been declining. By any indicator, mainly the most important and reliable one, willful homicides per 100,000 inhabitants from the early 90s through 2007. Violence in Mexico had been declining from around 20-odd willful homicides per year to under eight willful homicides per year in 2006 and 7, which is still higher than the United States, but one-third of Brazil, one-tenth of what Colombia had in its worst years, and one-third of what we have today. Violence in Mexico had been declining for 20 years and then spiked from 2007 onward we will close this year 2011 at brazilian levels. I have obviously the greatest of admiration for my friends from Brazil, but you know we were at a third of where they are now and now we're back where they are. Second, consumption in Mexico had been rising. Mexico had shifted from being a transit country to a country of consumption. Something had to be done about this. Absolutely false. Mexico has among the lowest rates of consumption of drugs in Latin America, much lower than the Central Americans, much lower than Brazil, much lower than Colombia, even lower than places like Chile and Uruguay. And the increases, while very significant in purely statistical terms, were from such a low baseline that they were insignificant. Mexico is not a market for drugs for a very simple reason. You have to be crazy if you are a trafficker. If you've got the biggest, richest market in the world right next door to sell your junk in Mexico, and the drug traffickers are not crazy. They're very intelligent, sophisticated businessmen. This is not the case in Bolivia. In Bolivia, you have Brazil, you have Chile, you have other places. If you already got the stuff into Mexico, why in the world would you want to pedal it there if you can pedal it across the border at 10 to 15 times the price? There are, is no sign of any significant increase in drug consumption in mexico over the past 15 years it has remained stable and at very low levels third well yes but the drug cartels have become so powerful that they were taking over the country this is more difficult to gauge how do you know when part of the country has been taken over by the drug cartels well probably the only way to know is when you take it back from them And then you say, this used to be in the hands of the cartels, the state of whatever. I'm taking it back, and I have now arrested or killed or thrown in jail, not the drug traffickers, those are easy, so to speak, but the governor, the mayors, the senators, the congressmen, the police chiefs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this has not happened in one single state in Mexico in five years under President Calderón, not one governor. Ex-governor, significant mayor of a significant city, congressman, senator. Nobody has been thrown in jail for this type of capture. Police people have been thrown in jail and then freed, by the way, but that's a different story. Even in Michoacan, when he arrested 30 mayors, his home state, and where the war began five years ago, the authorities had to free the 30 arrested mayors because they had no case against them. So the war was declared on false premises. None of the premises were true. Now, why was it declared? I think for very simple political reasons. I voted for President Calderón. I called on people to vote for him. I supported his efforts after the election to take office because I thought he had won, and I thought he won the election cleanly by 0.56 percent. Granted, I mean, this was not a landslide, to put it mildly. But he won the election. I think it was essentially a clean election. But he decided that, like many Mexican presidents before him, he had to do something spectacular on taking office in order to consolidate himself and legitimize himself in a highly questioned and controversial election. And he decided, for political reasons, that what he was going to do was send the army into Michoacán, a couple of other states, do the job, and then get out. Didn't work out that way. It was declared for political reasons, not for drug related reasons. This is important because it means that a lot of, if the premises were false then, they're still false now. Which means if we change strategies and find an alternative, we don't have to address these causes of the war, we have to address other causes and other effects of the war.
0: And finally, from the Cato Institute's Ending the Global War on Drugs conference, Salon.com columnist and blogger Glenn Greenwald.
9: The example of Portugal, which is really the only real hardcore empirical case that we have had thus far about what happens when a nation decriminalizes, has, has taken on a sizable and significant role in that debate, even though when we first worked on... The paper, very few people, including drug policy experts, had even been aware that Portugal had decriminalized drugs almost a decade ago. So I just want to spend my time briefly summarizing the reasons why it's been such a success. Because I think when you tell even like-minded people, sympathetic to the anti-prohibitionist argument, that when you decriminalize drug use, usage does not increase significantly and it can even decrease there's just some a sense that that's counterintuitive. It's difficult to understand why that would be. So I just want to identify the three reasons that if you talk to drug policymakers in Portugal and look at the data, I think you'll see are the reasons why that has taken place and why that would take place in any country that decriminalized. The first one is the most difficult to convey. It's a very subtle reason, but it's also probably the most significant. And that is that when you... Transform yourself from a government that criminalizes your citizenry into one that no longer does that over drug use. You eliminate a wall of fear that exists between the population and the government that prevents meaningful education programs and other types of activities designed to help people get off addiction or to minimize the harms of drugs. So if you talk to policymakers in Portugal, what they'll tell you is that prior to 2000, it was almost impossible for them to go into poor communities or communities racked by drugs and convey meaningful, educative messages because the population feared the government and was alienated from it and looked at it as the enemy. And you see comments like that all the time in the United States, the 34-year police veteran in Seattle who has taken on the cause of drug decriminalization in the United States will say that in his police career he could see that communities of color, that young people and others view the police as the enemy. And the state is the enemy because they went into those communities to arrest people and put them into prison, not to help. And therefore, any messages that they had, any programs they offered were tuned out and were rendered ineffective. And that's what Portuguese policymakers will say as well, that throughout the 1990s, nothing they did was of any efficacy because they were viewed as jailers. there to imprison and to criminalize. And now the world is completely different now they can go into these communities and they are no longer feared, they are welcome. So they can offer messages to youth and to their parents, they can offer counseling programs. It has fundamentally changed the relationship between the government and the citizenry from one of fear to one that is much more constructive. And that enables the government, if you're somebody who believes that the government should be discouraging drug use, it enables the government to communicate to the citizenry much more effectively Why certain drug usages, forms of drug usage are so dangerous and how those dangers can be minimized. That's a huge and significant change that has taken place in Portugal that is somewhat subtle but of extreme significance. The second reason why Portugal has had such success as a result of decriminalization, and this one is somewhat more obvious, is that it has freed up extreme amounts of resources. So because Portugal is no longer a country that spends enormous amounts of money imprisoning their citizens, indicting them, arresting them, prosecuting them, and then incarcerating them, instead that money is now freed up for things that are much more effective in terms of addressing the drug problem and related pathology. So they have money to spend on things like counseling programs or methadone clinics, or programs to distribute clean needles, or condoms, or other aids that can help people reduce the harms that come from drug use. And that particularly resonates, I think, both as a substantive matter and a political question in the United States, because we are now in what everybody agrees is an age of extreme austerity. In fact, most Western countries are. So you could previously hear arguments five years ago if you would debate prohibitionists that, well... It's not mutually exclusive. We can criminalize and we can offer a whole range of all these nice drug treatment programs and counseling programs and other things that you say are working in Portugal. And yet everyone now recognizes that that's no longer true. Almost every state is suffocating from budgetary constraints due to their growing prison population. Everybody knows that we don't have both choices. We don't have the choice to both criminalize and at the same time offer meaningful drug Programs, it's an either-or proposition. And what Portugal found is that when they chose the or, when they stopped spending all their money, putting their citizens into cages, they had ample money for education programs, for harm reduction programs, for counseling, for therapy, and for other things that let people who want to get rid of their addiction be able to do so meaningfully. The third reason that has caused such significant change in Portugal, and this too is a bit subtle, though, I'd say equally as important as changing the relationship between the government and the population, is that the government has stopped treating addicts and users as criminals and started to treat people with addiction problems as what they are, which are people with health problems. I had this amazing debate um, last week at Brown University with the former drug czar under the Bush administration, John Walters, and he stood up and he began by saying that the reason he believes in criminalization is because addiction is this serious, severe health problem that once you start taking drugs, you can no longer voluntarily stop because your brain gets addicted physiologically and and, and you no longer have any control over it. and. Leaving aside the very dubious proposition that he was relying upon to make that case, if you assume that that's true, then what that means is that it's not just a non sequitur, but it's actually incredibly cruel to criminalize and put people in prison for what even prohibitionists are now arguing is a health problem. I mean, it's a basic precept of Western justice that we don't punish people with prison for things that they do that are the byproduct of disease, even if you murder somebody and then demonstrate that you did so because it was the byproduct of a mental illness, you will not go to a prison but to a mental health facility because we treat health problems with health solutions, not criminal solutions. And this is what Portugal has done more than anything else that has changed things for the better so radically.
0: With tempers flared on the immigration issue, the new edition of Cato Journal couldn't come at a better time. This special issue, devoted exclusively to the question of Is Immigration Good for America, features articles from a dozen national experts and is now available for purchase and download at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.